going to be in James chapter 4. And as usually, we're going to start in the Proverbs. We'll do our proverb of the day. It's going to be Proverbs uh, 10, verses 8 through 10, and the teens can be dismissed at this point. Proverbs 10, 8 through 10. It says, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. He who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. And if you're still trying to open up to it, I'll read it over. The first verse is, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall or be thrust down. We know that the Bible tells us that the wise will always receive instruction. We know that the wise will always process information that comes their way. And Proverbs 9 actually tells us that the wise man will receive instruction, receive correction, receive reproof, and become even wiser. It's the foolish man who says, "Ah, they're know-it-alls, they know everything. So they're not going to receive instruction from anybody. Uh, The Bible says that the fool becomes more foolish by discarding these things. And the fool may even ridicule you for trying to correct them or teach them something. But the prating fool, the person who's self-sufficient, the braggart, the one who talks foolishly, will be figured out, the Bible says, and eventually they will fall. Verse 9, he who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. And these are the antithesis to each other. There's different types of proverbs, and these are like you see the great opposites from east to the west, the great dichotomy between the right way of living and the wrong way of living. So the one who walks securely, the one who walks with integrity walks securely. They don't really have to prove anything. They don't have to uh, go around and, and be paranoid about things. They, they walk securely because they walk with integrity, and God knows, and God will certainly guide their steps. But he who perverts his ways will become known. A person of low character will eventually be found out. Now this can take years, and I'm sure all of us have seen this. Uh, Something comes out years later, it could be 10 years, could be 20 years, could be 30 years. And sometimes some who are clever enough make it all the way to the judgment. But eventually their wicked ways, their deceptive ways, the person of low character will be found out. I find interesting that you know, you can't keep a secret. I mean, if you look at, going back that I can remember, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, you would think that the White House would be able to keep secrets. But over the years, stuff gets leaked all the time to the press, right? So we're really, our lives are really an open book. And even as Christians, Jesus says to do things in the light, to not be so secretive, to not have these clandestine meetings and, and you know, behind closed doors kind of attitude. Verse 10, it says, he who winks with the eye causes trouble, but a prating fool will fall. Winks with the eye. Now, a lot of these things that we read, depending on the time period, are cultural, right? Um, Winking with the eye, you know, we think of maybe the baseball players and they send signals to each other. But this was a way of a sly, deceitful way to stir up and cause trouble. It's a cunning way to get attention. Hey, you you know, you see people do that? It's a slick troublemaker, but these conspiracies will always be found out. And that's it. The prating fool again will fall. This repetition leads me to believe that the troublemaker will be found out given enough time. 
Now, we see, again, we're, we're uh, three for three here with the James study. Uh, some of this stuff we're going to see in our New Testament study today is parallel with Proverbs of the two ways of life expounded. So, as we turn to James 4, starting with verse 1, last time we covered faith controls the tongue. And today we're going to cover chapter 4, or most of it. So James chapter 4, starting with verse 1. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Where do wars and fights come from? The word uh, polemoi, where in the English we get the word polemic. You can see a lot of the etymology of words uh, from the Greek to the English. We get a lot of our words from the Greek. But all the strife in the world emanates from a few things. Pride, sinful desires, and love of the world. These are heart issues. James 1 tells us, when we cover James 1, that it's the desire or the cravings that are deep inside of us maybe some of the sinful desires and cravings, that when they're matched with a temptation from the outside, you get a connection. And then when you have that connection, and the, the part of you that craves that, and then you receive the temptation, and you get involved in it, then that's when it becomes sin. But they're often covered with lies, so they don't reveal the truth. Numbers chapter 12, I was reading something, and I came across this, and I've read the Bible a few times, but it is the living word, because every time I read it, I say, gee, I missed that the first three, four, five times. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron complained about Moses' wife, but the Bible says that that was just a red herring. That was just a surface skirmish, a diversion technique, because what they really wanted was some of uh, Moses' authority, and they got judged for that. Selfish and covetous people will always be unhappy and eventually start strife among others. In verse 2, there's lusts and coveting involved here. Lusts and coveting after the things that you want and maybe even feel entitled to. And, you know, when I went to college, I graduated, I got a, um, an economics degree. Um, I know that economics is multifaceted, uh, but part of how this country ran, the lusts and the covets that we have as Americans is part of the reason why we're in trouble right now. And it's not 100%. Again, there's a lot of facets to it. But let me give you an example. We're Americans. We deserve the house. We deserve the two cars. We deserve the green lawn, the pool in the backyard. We deserve all that. We're Americans. And what happens is we, we want, we lust, we covet. And maybe it's, this is starting to happen with young Americans. They say, well, I'm entitled to that. I'm entitled to that. And then what happens is we max out our credit cards. We take out loans for houses that are far bigger than we can afford because we want to impress our friends. And then when the bank starts to call, we don't, we don't have anything to give them. So then what happens? There's a glut of real estate that the banks are stuck with and there's no liquidity in the, in the economy. 
I didn't suppose you thought this morning when you got up that you'd get an economics lesson. And I'm not going to paint with a broad brush, but this is part of the reason that we got into this economic mess. I deserve that. Why? What do we deserve? We deserve hell. We're sinners. But because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we got everlasting life. This could be a luxury that we're coveting uh, for, or it could be as simple as an emotional need. You'd be surprised how people uh, behave strangely and fight hard to fill those emotional needs. You know? And I'm going to talk at the end. I think the end is really going to wrap it up. And almost take an introspective look of what makes us tick. Verse 3, James says, You don't have what you need because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask amiss. You're asking for the wrong things in life. See, prayer is not like Aladdin's lamp. You know, a lot of people have the idea, and unfortunately in some churches they teach this. You just have enough faith. Just ask God enough times and you'll get that brand new Mercedes Benz. It doesn't say that in the scripture. It's almost as if God is a genie in the bottle and we rub it and he comes out and we say, okay, God, you, you know, you're my servant. I want these three things. And then when I'm done with that, I want 10 more things. And then now come back in the bottle. Let me put you on the side until I need you again. That's not a relationship. That's called ridiculous, right? <laughs> and that's not how we're supposed to treat our God. Prayer is to be in line with God and to be a part of getting his will, not our will, his will get done in our lives. Sometimes we look at prayer as we want to get our will done and impose it upon God, but that's not what prayer is all about. I'm sensing James, and I just love this guy. I mean, he just, he hands it. He sent this letter out to all the scattered believing Jews, you know, the Christians who are from a Jewish background, all throughout the Mediterranean world for them to get this. But I'm sensing a frustration an unsettled spirit, a troubled soul, and the type of person that James is speaking of. Is that any of us today? It may be a case of praying, asking, striving for things, like the Bible says, for our own pleasure, and not what makes us truly at peace. And I've got to tell you, if you don't know the Lord, whether you're listening on the website, or the CD that somebody got you, or anyone in front of me now, if you don't know the Lord, don't follow the Christian who's double-minded. Don't do that because they're not at peace. You're going to get the wrong signal from these folks. The double-minded Christian who's, who's looking for all this stuff to make them happy doesn't get what it means to be a believer, right? The only thing that's going to give you peace is Christ. If you really understand that relationship with Christ, then you will have your peace. Romans 5 says we're at peace with God. There's no more enmity between the sinner, the unrepentant sinner and God, but it, there's also a peace that surpasses all understanding, two types of peace. And I gotta tell you, some prayers are more mandates than requests. I'm dead set on this, and I prayed about it. Well, do you think, no, listen, I prayed about it. I have a peace in my heart about it. I've heard that. Don't tell me anything else. Don't confuse me with the facts. I want what I want. I, go, I told God what I want, and he's gonna do it for me. If we say that we have a peace about something, it goes against scripture, we're fooling ourselves. But let us desire the best things, as the Bible tells us. Let us desire what God's will is for us in our lives, and we will be settled and we will be at peace. Now, me personally, I'm at peace. But I didn't say that I wasn't a sinner. I didn't say I don't get frustrated and angry at things at times. I didn't say any of those things, but I did say that I'm at peace. Some of my guys that I work with, some of the younger officers, 
you know, they're getting burnt. You know, as the summer get, heats up, the, calls are, the call volume is getting busier, and they're like, Joe D., we got to get off afternoons. We're going to midnight. So he goes, how do you take it this long? Because I'm just at peace. I like what I do. You know, after doing it so long, I mean, God has just given me a peace of what, about what I do. I look at my job as an opportunity to help reach others for Christ. Verse 4, he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. Heavy language James is using. Spiritual adultery is all over the Old Testament. Let me explain that. Adulterers and adulteresses. He's not saying all you Christians out there are, are adulterers. What he's saying is, you see, in the Old Testament, and also carried through in the New Testament, uh, the theme was, or the thought was, that God was a husband to his people. He was a husband to the children of Israel. They were his bride. And what happened was they looked at the pagans surrounding them, the pagan world, the different gods, the things that the pagans had, the fact that they had a king, and they lusted after the things of the world. And God said, but I'm going to be your only fulfillment. They actually rejected God and started playing what's called spiritual adultery. In a sense, they broke the marriage covenant with their husband. And that's heartbreaking to God because he loved them so much. So what James is talking about here is a spiritual adultery. A double-minded Christian will end up constantly walking between the world and walking between Christ. It's a picture of having two paramours, two lovers, but no spouse. Now, in the observable world, that's problems. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. If you've got two that you're interested in and, you know, you don't make a decision and you just keep living your life like that, that's a problem in the real world. And it's certainly a problem in the spiritual world. Supposedly being yoked to the Lord, but sneaking, sneaking out at night and cheating on him. Hopefully our lives don't reflect that. Almost all Bible authors in the Old Testament and the New Testament and Jesus have warned about loving the world. And what we hope is that one day, you ever see the cartoons where they get an idea and like the light bulb goes off? I mean, the light bulb is either going to go off and we're going to realize, hey, I'm not getting it. Or we're going to find ourselves in a very bad spiritual place and wonder how it happened. A Christian who has cravings for the world will always eventually become unstable. Now, James is writing to who? Who is your audience? He's writing to believers who are scattered, maybe isolated, certainly persecuted. Where's the love here, James? You see, James is loving them. Because what happens is, if you have a faith and you are, are you're pressured, you're under persecution, Check out some of the overseas news, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, what's going on with Christians in other countries. I mean, they're really getting pummeled for what they believe. You're either going to be tempted to go into the world, because I just don't want the heat anymore. I don't want the persecution. Get off my back. Okay, okay, I'll do what everybody else says. I'll compromise. Or you become stronger. And there's many instances in Voice of the Martyrs of, uh, uh, and the Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs, of Christians who become stronger through persecution. James, this is a little bit of a tough love session. Hey, guys, the answer isn't if you're persecuted to go back into the world. Get out of there. Run from that. The answer is to stay in the faith and have a greater devotion to God. So it may come off as harsh, but he's really loving them. Verse 5. He says, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, and he's quoting, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, end quote. The spirit dwelling in us yearns jealously. When we are believers, when we have given our life to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God is a jealous God. The Bible tells us that, but not in a bad way. People are jealous because of whims and prejudices and things that they want and 
you know, just some bad stuff. But God is a jealous God in a different way. God wants us all to himself. God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. God doesn't want us to go down the wrong path. He's a jealous God. He loves us that much. I was at a, a pastor's conference uh, last week, and one of the teachers, speakers, K.P. Yohannan, said to the men, these were all senior pastors. I was sitting in the back. There was like hundreds of them, a sea of senior pastors all throughout the, the country. And he said, men, you have to realize that God loves you. Some of you have not realized that God loves you. God is a jealous God. When we understand it from the standpoint that God loves me, well, how can that be? There's so many billions of people on the planet. There's probably a whole bunch of people in heaven. How can he focus on me? You know, just based purely on the logistics, you know, sometimes we think too much. We don't get it. But he loves us individually. He's given us a unique soul, a unique personality, a unique gifts. He loves us, folks, and we have to understand that. That's the gospel message. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on Jesus 2,000 years ago and the sacrifice he made on the cross and shed his blood for the remission of our sins will be saved. They'll be saved. They won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's the message of love. And that's what we have to understand when we read this verse. The Spirit can't work to his full capacity in a believer's life if it's filled with worldliness. That's why the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't take that fire and compartmentalize and push it down and compact it until it becomes the pilot light under your stove. Don't do that. Don't do that. James said earlier, lay all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Lay it aside. Take it out of our hearts so that the implanted word of God can take root in our heart and grow and be fruitful and produce fruit. The Spirit of God knows that this type of life, this double-minded life, is dangerous to the believer. And the Spirit knows the terrible outcome to a believer. So this is done out of love. Pastor Anthony said on Wednesday night when he, he was doing his teaching on Zechariah, he said, he says, um, you know, if you have a good devotional life, a good devotional life isn't for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. And that's the mistake that we make. Well, I came to church today. That's one for me. God must be really blessed today. I saw God frowning, but I went to church and I even prayed and read a few verses. He's happy today. I made him happy. A good devotional life blesses us. It doesn't bless. I mean, God's blessed for the relationship, but it does us good more than it does God good. Verse 6, another quotation. He says, but God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud. Now, I looked up the, I love looking up the words just to see in the concordance, the Strong's concordance, what does the Greek say? Is there a deeper meaning that I could pull out of here and make an example of? The word for proud has a few meanings. It means appearing above others. It means haughty. Well, in our vernacular, you could say even, you can make the case for being stuck up, right? God resists that. Now, that's common in the Northeast, and sometimes believers become like their surroundings, right? And, and that's a shame. And the children of Israel did it. So whatever your surroundings are, be careful not to be influenced by the world. I've seen this class thing. person will be stuck up and then find out later that that person that they turned their nose up at was somebody of status. Oh, and they, all of a sudden they want to be friends with them. Man, that's really double-minded. God doesn't like stuck up. 
He resists the haughty. God likes nice people. We need to be nice people. Now, applying these principles to the church today, the Western church especially, we can trace any divisiveness, wars, strife, and we look at it on a big scale. You can look at and apply this to the world. You could look at World War II. Two leaders of two countries were so, such megalomaniacs that they wanted that one was going to go east, one was going to go west, and they were going to meet in the middle and take over the world of World War II. And I bet you if they did that, they would have fought each other. Because that's the way people are. You know, we're never satisfied. So you can look at the world, but James is making an application for believers uh, specifically. Any divisiveness, any strife, instability. You can boil it down to a few things. Pride, jealousy, covetousness, and worldliness. And every person who is in the center of that drama or precipitated it will have trouble with a, with a few questions. This is like the easy litmus test. Here's the question. You ask somebody. They're causing problems, they're trouble. Uh, there's something that's just not right. And you could ask these questions. Hey, we were in the book of Acts a few months ago. What did you learn through the book of Acts? What is God showing you? Has your life changed through studying the book of Acts? They look at you like a deer in headlights. You know you have trouble. And if, you, if that person's in ministry, you have bigger troubles because they're not paying attention to the word. Are you in prayer? Are you in the word? What did you read recently? You don't quiz somebody every morning, but what did you read recently? What did you pray about? What is God showing you? K.P. O'Hannon again uh, says that you know, at the end of every evening, he finds a quiet place, he, he, he sits down, and he just closes his eyes, and he just says, Lord, speak to me. He wants to know, what is the Lord showing him? What did I do today? Lord, what was good? What was bad? What was edifying? What could I change? I got to tell you, I'm 41 years old, and I'm still open to learning lessons. I've learned lessons at 40 and 41 that I feel like I'm 10 years old again, because I'm always willing for God to teach me something new about me and my life. What can I change? What can I make better? Can we honestly say we're submitted to God? The Greek word for submitted literally means to get into proper rank. It's a military term. Not the rank that we want to achieve, but the rank that we belong in. Are we truly more concerned with what God wants in our life or our own desires for life? The answer to these questions can really say a lot about our walks. Taking these verses all together, the double-minded Christian is at war with themselves first and then war with others. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Verse 7, therefore. Therefore, has been conveniently sandwiched between verse 6 and verse 7. Therefore, God never leaves us with a hopeless situation. I don't care if it's the Old Testament. I don't care if it's the New Testament. God never leaves us with a hopeless situation. He always gives us a, a way to repair the problem. He always gives us a way to repent. So here's the prescription. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse and repent, mourn, bewail, humble self, and call me in the morning. Sort of. Let's take it piece by piece. Number one, submit to God. Problems have arisen out of rebellion against God. And that's just it. Even as believers, when we have problems with our lives, we're not submitted to the Spirit. 
Why do we have problems? Why do we have wars? Why do we, it just goes back to what he says in the beginning. It's because we're not submitted to God. Whether overtly or covertly, or maybe we don't know, and we have to just wonder or, or ask ourselves, why do I feel like this? Why am I doing this? Why are things not going right in my life? Submission is a hard thing for a nation of people used to, for, used to freedom and entitlements. And I love my country. You know, I would fight for my country. But it's a double-edged sword. With those freedoms comes a free will that's just unchecked, unbridled, if we want it to be. Any vice you could ask for, you can get in the United States. So freedom is good, and freedom can be bad. Resist the devil. The Greek word for resist is anthistemi. Now, one source I read said we get the word antihistamine from this word, which is interesting. What does a histamine do? It, antihistamine, it blocks histamine. So what do we need to do? We need to block the devil. We need to put up a good blocking front, right? Like those blockers on the line. If we strayed from God, we've allowed devil access, and now we need to block him. We need to repent and bl block him. What does resist mean? You know, what does any word mean? Resist means to resist, okay? Both God and the devil both know when we're making a half-hearted e effort to resist evil and to resist the devil and to resist temptations. The devil really won't flee if we don't want him to. Oh, please leave, but I really like that temptation. Oh, please leave with our mouth and our heart is saying, but I really like that temptation. Don't, don't be surprised if he doesn't leave. Verse 8, draw near to God, because guess who's created the gap between us and God, starting from the beginning? We have. If there's a gap between us and the Lord, we've created that gap. And we must take the first step in bridging the gap, because God's not going to force us. We need to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. This is all a part of repentance. Admit the sin of double-mindedness. I'm going to say that two of the top ten teachings that I enjoy teaching both come out of Judges. One is Judges 16, which I've talked to you about before. You can check out the Samson study. And the second study is Judges 10. Judges 10 is a picture of true repentance. We say, oh, yeah, I've repented. Yeah, I said I'm sorry. Yeah, but did we really say I'm sorry? Do we really mean it in our hearts? According to Judges 10, when I did the study, there was three steps to repentance, believe it or not. The children of Israel were in trouble again, and there is, their enemies were oppressing them, and they cried out to God, help us, help us. And God's like, all right. The first step that the children of Israel did was they confessed their sins. They confessed what they had done wrong. God still didn't help them. And they kept crying out to God, help us. The second step that the children of Israel did was they accepted the consequences. They said, Lord, we would prefer that you're mercy, merciful to us, but we know that we've done wrong and we'll accept whatever form of punishment you mete out. God still didn't free them from their oppression. The third thing that the children of Israel did was action. Actions speak louder than words. There was fruits of repentance. They finally took all their little idols, all their little false gods that they worshipped, they got their caterpillar bulldozer, you know, scooped them up, put them in a pile, grounded them up, burnt them, and they got rid of them. And then God freed them from their oppression. In our society, that's offensive to us because we're taught self-esteem is important. We're, we're taught to love ourselves. You know, we really love ourselves when we walk with God because when we walk with God, he has the right way for us to be content, to be at peace, to be saved. Loving ourselves isn't indulging ourselves. That's a lie. That's wrong. That's what the world teaches. Verse 9 through 10, he says, Lament, mourn, and weep. How would you like to get this letter from James? <laughs> oh, man, this is rough. I'll read the rest of it tomorrow. 
lament, mourn, and weep. God wants me to be sad? I don't think you're going to find this in the seeker-friendly church. (laughs) But what would society say? There's actually a book written by an evolutionist, Richard Dawkins, called The Selfish Gene. Now, I understand his premise about the selfish gene. I understand the survival. I understand all that. But some have taken that premise, tailed on what he was saying, and they want to make a whole idea of we shouldn't be punished for anything that we do because it's in our genes. Now, Dawkins wasn't saying that, but others are tailing on to this philosophy. Now, you know where this is going. Well, might as well take a bunch of laws off the book because I couldn't help myself. It's just the way I am. And you might as well outlaw spanking your children's tushes because they can't help themselves. It's just the way they are. And what you're doing is you're, you're becoming, we're becoming a society where nothing's anybody's fault. You know, it's all relative. And that's what we're heading to in a postmodern age. No, we need to be cut to the heart. If we haven't been cut to the heart about something in the last few months, we need to reevaluate our lives and see what we could be cut to the heart about. Apologize to God. Have a deep, heartfelt transformation. A cathartic response. It's cleansing. Mean it, right? It's good to repent and start all over again. All the bad stuff is gone and only the good stuff is left. I got to tell you, in my life, if I look at my life from a little boy, if I've done something wrong and I've really repented and I was really sorry and I really got it out and the person that I hurt just welcomed me with loving arms like it never happened, boy, that feels good. That's good for us. Taking it, holding it, covering it, running away with it, you know, like the burglar with the sack over his back, that's not the way to go. There needs to be that that repentance. Let me give you an example. I'm going to use a parable. I made up this parable, so if it stinks, you know, it didn't come from the Bible. It's about citronella. I have mosquitoes in my yard, so I got all these citronella things with wicks, right? Apparently a lot of you have mosquitoes too. So anyway, one day I go to light the citronella wick, and I'm lighting it, and I'm lighting it, and it just won't burn. So I'm looking at it. I open the cap. I pour the oil into my hands. It... It smells like oil, it feels like oil, you know, it looks like oil. But what happened? I left the cap out in a storm, and the water diluted the oil just enough to make it ineffective. There was no fire. Now look at this spiritually. I had to dump out all the diluted and contaminated oil and fill it with pure oil, and only could I then maintain the fire. Lament, mourn, weep, repent. Let's bring back the fire into our lives, people. We're believers. We're the king's kids. We've got incredible eternal promises. There's a fire that destroys, and we talked about that last week. And then there's the fire that gives us our passion for the things of the Lord. What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about your kids' sports games? That's great. You should be. Are you passionate about your spouse? Are you passionate about your hobbies or the things that you're good at? But what about a passion for God? We seem to have lost that. We have a passion for everything here, there, and everywhere, but we've lost the passion for God. We need to get that fire back into our lives, people. There's a world out there that's dying and going to hell. What are we doing? Is there anything burning inside? Is there any flame? Is there anything in the oven? What's happening? Or are we just drifters? And if we've lost that passion for God and we've lost that fire for God, then you know what? That's another thing that we could repent of. And he forgives us. He'll give it back to us if we ask for it. Verse 10. If we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. That's awesome. 
This is where it starts to get good. Whether we're talking about the military or a paramilitary organization like the police academy, right? What do they do? They send you through boot camp. They send you through the police academy and they break you down. They get all the self out of you. Because when you're on the line and you're, you're in fire, right? Nate, back me up, just came back from Iraq. And you're firing, your buddy can't be running the other way. They either gotta be pulling you back with them or they gotta get into the fight with you. So what happens is in these organizations, they break you down, they take all the self out of you. And then what happens is they build you back up as a team. They get all the junk out. Look at all the parallels here. The citronella, the military, I mean, this is good stuff. <laughs> but it's true. We need to be built back up. And when we finally get all the junk out of us, it's only God that can lift us up. Come over here, son. Isn't that awesome? Take my hand, son. Let me lift you up. Let me, ah, what? What did we just talk about? I forgot about that. That's what repentance is. And then he lifts us back up. And there's so many Christians that are walking around and they're ineffective because they haven't repented. They just put junk and, and stuff, good stuff on top of junk and then more junk and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, folks. It doesn't work. Where are we today? You know, God asked Adam after he sinned, where are you, Adam? I could picture him saying, son, where are you? I love you. Why'd you cover yourself up? Why are you hiding from me, son? I'm your daddy. What's going on? Folks, where are we spiritually? If God asked us, Joe, where are you? What would I answer him? Would I hide from him because of my own guilt? Or would I just be so happy to see him? Where are you spiritually? Here's the answer to verses 1 through 6. Here's the anti-venom. Here's the cure for the disease. It's good stuff. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. I just one verse. I want to read it to you, and many of you have it memorized. But, and this is a, there's a contextual issue here. This is the children of Israel. Okay, It says, If my people, God speaking, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This doesn't just apply to the children of Israel. We're called by God's name. We're called Christians. We're called believers. We're called people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, the world, America needs to repent. Uh-uh, we need to repent. God was speaking about his people. They were just as bad as the folks that were around them, the pagans. So we need to. Why are there so many problems in America? Why, what is it, why does it look like we're losing? Why does it look like the tide is shifting against us? Maybe there's not enough of God's people that are repenting for their sins. Is it more important to be part of a Christian community or to please God? Because I've got to tell you, when the rapture comes, there's going to be a Christian community. There's going to be millions of Christians still left on the earth or people who call themselves Christians that aren't going to go up in the first train, okay? The first bus, they're going to miss it. So is it, is it more important to be part of a Christian community or is it more important to please God? See, the children of Israel had to make that decision and guess what? So do we. We're living in very interesting times. Just take a look at the news at any day of the week. Verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? What's cool about James is 
again, I've said it before, it's like uh, looking at a beautiful piece of art or an interwoven rug. It's a, a mosaic. It's a, it's a tapestry. And James starts out in the first chapter and he reiterates his points and they go back and forth and he, he strengthens some of those points later in the book. He, he's covered this. This theme is interwoven in many places, not only in James, but in God's word. We just covered faith controlling the tongue and here it's said another way. Speaking evil of a brother or sister and judging them or condemning that person. Now, you may say, well, what does this have to do with what we just read? You know, it was James changing subjects here? No, I think not. Some of our wars and strife come from jealousy over other people. Looking at another Christian, maybe they're blessed in a way that you're not or you think that you're not and you have a jealousy issue. You have a covetous issue against that person. Could be from the same fellowship. That's a problem. So James is still, I believe, speaking about the same subject here. It's the equivalent here, speaking evil of a brother or sister is equivalent to condemning that person. It's the equivalent of condemning the law. We've covered uh, the law extensively. We've covered about how we're supposed to love God first with everything we have, and then we're supposed to love our brother or sister. And what we're doing is we are speaking evil of the law, and how is this? Because by our behavior and our thoughts, I guess you follow the logic here, we've condemned the law. The law is not important. Loving my brother, loving my neighbor, it's not important because of the way my behavior and my thoughts are taking over me. It's like you just kind of discarded that law. So he's saying that you know, doing that to the law is only re reserved for God, and God hasn't even condemned his law. Even when Jesus came, he said, I did not come to condemn the law or destroy the, destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to fulfill it in a way that you've never seen before, and let me show you how it's done. Now, we think about gossip and slander coming to mind, but what about finding fault with a person based on their appearance? And we've covered that too, or how we've treated them, right? How about looking at a person and maybe they came from a, a background that you didn't come from, so you look down differently at them. Maybe you're both Christians, um, you know, and, and this happens. Well, I, I look at myself, I, well, I didn't fall down that path. I didn't go that far down. So you know what? You still have this class thing going. What if there was a replacement pastor for me? And you had two candidates, and some churches do this, candidate A and candidate B. Candidate A is maybe a younger pastor who had addiction problems in his life, but he really loves the Lord, and he really is, is a good candidate. Or candidate B, the man who's maybe older and has gray hair, comes from a good family, went to a good seminary. He's got all the, all the, the plaques and the pieces of paper with the letters to show that he, he's capable for the job. Tell me some people wouldn't look at candidate B and think right off the bat, that's the one we want. What do we do? We just judge the other person. Get to know these people, you know? Don't just judge them based on appearances. There's a really neat book written by uh, a pastor in Manhattan called uh, Tim Keller, and the book is called Prodig Prodigal God. And he does a great exposition on the prodigal son. Now, you know the story about the prodigal son. You had the older brother, which 40% of the verses in that um, parable devoted to him. Some people say the older son has no significance in that parable. I disagree. 60% goes to the younger son, the younger brother. And what happens is, of course, the younger brother goes off. He's probably um, spending his money wastefully. He goes with, you know, pro I think prostitutes. He um, does all these bad things. He's very wayward. He finds himself at rock bottom with the pigs, and he's eating their food. And he has this idea that, you know, if I just go uh, repent to my father, you know, why am I living like this? And he comes back, and the father welcomes him with open arms, throws a feast. The older brother's angry. He's like, listen, I've always been with you, 
And uh, he was mad that the father welcomed. This whole book is incredible. I mean, it really takes it apart. But what it shows is that Christians can be, in some ways, categorized as an older brother or a younger brother. The Christian who comes from addictions, who comes from prostitution, who comes from a lot of the things that Jesus came to save these people and then comes to the faith. And they're still looked down upon because of their testimony. Or a Christian who's grown up in a Christian home, you know, has a good family name and has done all the right things. Sometimes they can be like the older brother. And what he shows is that some of the older brother types can be judgmental. They can be uncompassionate, unmerciful, unaccepting of the younger brother types. And then some younger brothers, when they're in the faith long enough, start acting like older brothers and don't want to see some younger brothers come in. It's just a bizarre thing. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we think these thoughts? Why do we judge others? And verse 12, he says, last verse, he says, who are you to judge another? Who are you who judges? In our vernacular, we may say, who do you think you are? Or we may say, who died and made you boss? But you get the point. You know, I look at this, and this whole passage is about introspection. And it's hard. It's about looking into ourselves and seeing what, what we're lacking, how we can find some fault and how we can repent. And there's just a few questions. What makes us tick? What makes me tick? You ever ask these questions to yourself? Why am I angry? Why am I unfulfilled? And it's good to, to chase that. It's good to explore it. Why am I frustrated? Why am I never satisfied? Why do I still have these unresolved issues? Why do I act like this? Why am I uncommitted? Why don't I like that person? Am I that shallow? God, am I truly devoted to you or only when it benefits me? Do I look down my nose at others? Am I stuck up? If I saw somebody in the store and I knew they were a believer but they weren't part of my group, would I say hello to them? Have I been in ministry so long that I can't learn something new from God? I can't learn something new from others? Maybe somebody younger than me? Maybe not somebody quite as smart as me? Not quite as educated as me? Would I just ignore everything they say because I look at them as I'm better than them? Why have I spread so much gossip about that person? Can I take correction? When I converse with my friends and in my conversation, does the Lord ever come up? Does the Lord ever come up or only as an afterthought? Or am I just talking about the world and everything that the world does? Folks, we need to practice true repentance. We need to answer some of these questions. If some of us have these questions, they need to be answered. And we need to ask the Lord, what is the root of this? What is it about me? Is it lust? Is it covetousness? Is it a desire for things that I really want, that are really worldly, and I'm cheating on you, Lord? When I come and I, I pray and I smile and I go to church and I look in the scripture, but there's a part of me that sneaks out at night and looks for the old boyfriend or the old girlfriend, the paramour that I still haven't gotten over yet, you know? We need to submit to God. We need to draw near to God. We need to really resist the devil and not give it lip service because the devil just laughs. He's not going anywhere if you're not resisting him. We need to humble ourselves and let the Lord lift us up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful for James. We're thankful that James had the...